Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. We've entitled our second season Asset Class. After years of very good returns, broad indices of US stocks and bonds look expensive relative to history. This reality both limits future returns and increases the risk of a market correction. Investors who want to enhance future returns or reduce risk may need to adopt a more sophisticated approach, looking at different sectors and styles within US equities and bonds, and looking at other assets to diversify their portfolios. And that's what Asset Class is all about. In each episode, we look at an area of investing and speak to an expert in this area. For US equity investors, in recent years, there's been no place like home. Part of this has been about local economic performance, with the US achieving uninterrupted growth between the great financial crisis and the pandemic recession. Part of it's been about currency, with a rising dollar hurting international returns in five of the last eight years. And part of it's been about composition, with the booming technology sector in the United States boosting the value of US stocks relative to the rest of the world. This being said, at the end of last year, the MSCI World Index XUS was trading at a forward price earnings ratio of 16.7 times, 25% cheaper than the S&P 500, with a considerably higher dividend yield. If the next few years see faster rising earnings outside of the United States and a further decline in the dollar, international stocks could well outperform their US counterparts. Perhaps equally important, US investors have generally reduced their investments in overseas equities in recent years, reducing the overall diversification of their portfolios. So it may be that at the start of 2021, with the light at the end of the pandemic tunnel, investors should consider increasing their exposure to international equities. To discuss this, I'm very excited to be joined by Shane Duffy, who serves as Lead Portfolio Manager for International Equity Funds here at JP Morgan. So Shane, welcome to Insights Now. Thank you very much for inviting me on, David. So first question, there's literally a world of stocks you could invest in when looking at international strategies. How do you select which stocks to own? Yeah, it's, you're right. It's a very, very broad universe outside the US. I mean, if you just take the developed markets, um, the MSCI IFA, that's up close to 900 stocks. And then if you throw in Canada and, and the emerging markets as well, you're getting up over, over 2,000. So um, it's changing all the time. And we have to find a way to try and sift through that, as you say, to find the stocks we want to invest in. And there's there's lots of ways you could do that. You could do that with uh, screening tools, um, you know, looking for cheap stocks, for quality stocks. But I think that only gets you so far. It's inherently backward looking and it's very easy to do. So it's hard to say that you're, uh, you know, any better than the, the, the next guy in terms of screening a stock universe. So... You know, our belief is that the the only way to really find the gems among a universe that that that, that that's that broad is to undertake detailed fundamental bottom up research. We have over eighty analysts in the in the regional investment teams around the world, and that's a really powerful network to be able to leverage for someone in my position. But the critical thing being a PM in the middle of all of that incredible exchange of information and ideas is that you have a common framework so you can make a valid comparison between say a a Japanese industrial company or a a European consumer business. Okay next question do you believe that the greater technology weighting in US equity indices justifies the higher valuations of US stocks? Yeah I mean mathematically yes that does justify some of the the valuation disparity that you mentioned right up front David so when you have over a third of the index in fast-growing uh, technology companies with very high returns on capital and fast growth, as, as the US does, then mechanically that does demand a higher valuation uh, for the overall index. But if you look at Europe, for example, which is a, a large component of, of the non-US space, Europe has less than 10% of its market cap in tech and media. So 
that um, valuation disparity to some extent is justified. But then to my mind, that means that the, that the US versus non-US call is really wrapped up in, in the broader growth versus value, cyclicals versus defensives kind of debate. You know, the US stock market is valued like a growth company uh, on, a, on a higher multiple, reflecting some of those those characteristics. So um, if you have a more positive view on the cycle um, uh, and want to sort of extend out on the risk curve, then that would suggest uh, more of an allocation uh, into non-US stocks. Also, I'd add that, you know, there's been a lot of um, focus, I guess, on, on tech and internet, quite rightly, uh, over the last decade. But that's not the only part of the market where companies are well positioned to create long-term value. And we see a number of companies in other industries like capital goods or healthcare, uh, consumer, or even financials, where you know, businesses equally have strong moats, high margins and, and pathways to growth. So there's lots of other sectors out there where, where value is being created. And, and in many of those sectors, we think you know, some of the leading companies globally sit outside of uh, the US. Thanks for that perspective, Shane. I guess my next question is, looking into 2021 and beyond, how should the end of the global pandemic impact the relative performance of US versus international stocks? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big, the big question right now. The biggest hits to earnings in the last year have been in, in more cyclically exposed sectors like energy, banks, industrials, consumer. And these are the sectors where you typically see bigger index weights outside the US. So, so consequently, US earnings were a bit more resilient in, in the downdraft of the pandemic, still down substantially on the year, but but less so uh, than, than we saw in, in international markets. So if we reverse that analysis and, w- and we look out into 21, 22, and, and we get optimistic about uh, some kind of recovery, both I would say, you know, a natural kind of recovery from depressed levels of activity this year, um, but also enhanced by some of the, the policy stimulus we're seeing, both uh, fiscal and monetary, then I think you can start to paint a picture of um, uh, a more pronounced earnings recovery uh, in the non-US space. Um, just to go back to that, um, the, the research point we talked about earlier on, if we look at the earnings forecasts of our in-house analysts, um, so aggregating the bottom-up earnings expectations from our equity analysts uh, uh, around the world, you know, we're looking at something like a a 30-35% recovery in in earnings potentially uh, from Europe in 2021, a similar rebound in Japan, and that will be faster than than the US where we're anticipating at the moment a a recovery of just over 20% uh, in terms of earnings growth. Now those, those numbers are subject to change where um, you know, about to go through an earnings season, companies will probably guide us more closely in terms of what's happening. Um, but, you know, I think it stands to reason that you'll see a, a faster earnings recovery uh, coming out of non-US markets. Um, you know, if we look at some of the policy initiatives as well, uh, we've got a, a, a Eurozone recovery fund in place. Um, I think this time around, uh, the policy response has been uh, impressive from Europe. I think everyone uh, investing internationally carries this kind of psychological scar from 2012 and, and the Eurozone crisis. Um, and, you know, of course, um, that was a tough time. But I think equally, you know, policymakers in Europe have reflected on that period and, and they've shown a lot more um, uh, responsiveness this time around uh, in terms of trying to put policy in place to 
to, to kickstart the recovery uh, in Europe coming out of this uh, pandemic. Likewise, we've seen um, you know, a, a profound policy response in China and, and strong credit growth there. I think there's a lot of reasons to see a supportive backdrop uh, for, for international. Um, and if I think back to the the last phase in markets that this reminds me of, it feels a little bit like late 2017 when we had um, global synchronized growth on the horizon. And it's in that sort of environment where you do have a, a synchronized uh, recovery and acceleration in the global economy uh, that we tend to see international stocks outperforming uh, their US counterparts. Of course, a key issue for all international investments is the exchange rate. So do you expect the dollar to fall or over the next few years or not? And if so, why? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important question because, as you say, I think, you know, when, when we reflect on the, the decade that we've had and the relative returns of U.S. equities versus non-U.S., then the dollar's been a big, a big part of that. Um, you know, if I take my lead from uh, our in-house uh, macro experts that J.P. Morgan Asset Management puts out uh, the long-term capital markets assumptions, which I think is a, a tremendous um, guide in terms of where um, relative returns might sit across a, a wide range of, of asset classes as, as we look out across the, the investment horizon. And the view there would be that you know there is a good case for a, a secular decline in, in the dollar here. The dollar has had a bit of a safe haven status for, for much of the last uh, decade, driven by a real yield and a growth advantage uh, for the US economy. But, you know, per my earlier comment, if we believe that, that growth is going to balance up a bit um, as we emerge from this pandemic, that policy responses are accommodative and stimulative everywhere, um, and, and growth is a bit more balanced globally between the US and um, non-US economies, then I think that does argue for um, a slightly weaker dollar and, and a steady decline uh, in the dollar's value, um, especially also if we see inflation come through a bit faster in the US than we're likely to see in the Eurozone or, or in Japan. How important do you think China will be to the performance of international stocks going forward? Yeah, I think it will be very important, David. I mean, both directly and indirectly. If you look at the direct exposure uh, you might get to China, Chinese equities now account for close to 40% of, of the MSCI emerging markets and around 12% of the MSCI Acquiex US. So you can't ignore China as an equity market and, and it's something we, we focus closely on uh, as international investors. Um, the other point to make, of course, is that there's a lot of indirect exposure to China. Uh, China's been an important growth market for a number of companies listed in uh, Europe and Japan over the last decade. You know, as these companies have struggled for growth domestically, it's made a lot of sense to, to build businesses in, in China and, and the abro broader emerging markets. Um, and that, so, so, you know, you have to think about how Chinese growth drives, not just the outlook for Chinese equities, but also for um, companies in, in, in non-US markets who, that are geared into to Chinese growth. And for us, you know, that's that's manifested itself in different ways over a number of years. I think it started with more of a kind of fixed asset investment story um, where everyone was focused on uh, the implications for commodity prices and, and raw materials going into China. But I think to some extent that that story has played out. Um, what's much more 
interesting from here and more durable, I think, is the shift um, uh, in Chinese consumption and the growth of that part of the economy to something that, that, that rivals more of the kind of U.S. mix where, um, you know, the, the, the consumer makes up uh, the majority of, of, of GDP. And that growth story for me is a very durable long-term theme. It obviously helps when the broader GDP growth environment for China is strong. That had been under some pressure in recent years as the Chinese growth model in aggregate slowed a little, but the consumption stories remained very, very resilient. So that's largely where we focus as investors is trying to access that 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 growing consumer. And that, you know, that's been behind the growth of the you know Chinese internet giants, of course, but it's also been a massive growth driver for uh, a sector like um, luxury goods or broader premium consumption. And those themes, to me, are best accessed in, in the European market. Some have argued that the European economy is too slow growing and too regulated to ever allow European stocks th to thrive. Do you agree? I think there is some truth to that. Um, you know, if you again, to sort of go back to that index composition point, if you look at you know, the exposure in, in European equity markets to the more kind of regulated, slow growth domestic industries, um, you know, it is relatively high versus, say, the US. Um, if you add up banks, utilities and telecoms, that's around 15% of the, of the European equity market. Um, it's not to say you can't find opportunities within those sectors, but the reality is, you know, those sectors can't really escape the domestic growth rate in Europe. So, you know, I think there are some parts of Europe where that absolutely is true and um, and you have to tread carefully. But I think you know people have mistakenly extended that logic to say, well, the, the whole asset class is doomed. Um, you know, Europe is a low growth, structurally low growth economy. Therefore, it can't be an attractive equity market. And I think that's that's a flawed logic because, you know, the equity market is not necessarily the same thing as as GDP. Um, we've talked um, earlier on about some of the industries listed in Europe experiencing, you know, strong growth because they have exposure to some of the um, more favourable growth trends um, in China, for example. But I think actually the the growth struggle is, you know, it's something that, that European policymakers are aware of. If, uh, if you look at R&D spend in Europe, historically it's been lower than the US. It's been focused in areas like pharma or autos, where the payoffs have been um, pretty mixed, shall we say. Um, and I think that's understood. And I think there's a desire to try and deal with that and, and improve that situation. Okay. But how do you respond to the idea that someone who is invested in the US is invested in multinational corporations and therefore has plenty of global exposure and doesn't need any more? Yeah, we hear that, that, um, that pushback. Um, and there are, you know, a, a select group of U.S. companies that have formidable overseas businesses and, and compete really, really well in Europe, Asia, and, and around the world. But when you add it all up and you look at the overseas revenue exposure of the S and P 500, it's around 40% of revenues coming from outside the U.S. So even with those good global companies, it's still overwhelmingly a domestically driven asset class in terms of revenues and profits. If you flip that around and you look at the MSCI Acquiex US, then around 80% of revenues come from outside the US for those companies. So, you know, you can't ignore uh, those numbers that if you want exposure to the broader 
sweep of, of global revenues, then I think you have to have exposure to uh, to the non-US equity landscape. I think added to that, I think there's a, a case to be made around um, having exposure in portfolios to themes, um, growth themes that you simply can't access or are very difficult to access in the, in the US equity market because you know the companies that play to these uh, growth idea growth drivers are, are simply not there okay last question within the equity section of u.s portfolios what share do you believe investors should allocate to international equities what share do they invest right now yeah i mean this is the 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 big question um and i th- you know I, I again i would take my lead from our our multi-asset experts at, at jp morgan and the multi-asset solutions group who spend all day thinking about you know, optimal asset allocation and how to how to allocate between asset classes and within equities? They they'd be arguing for a 65-35 split within the equity allocation. So 65 domestic, 35 uh, overseas. Um, and at the moment, in fact, that I mean that would be the strategic weight. Um, at the moment, they'd be arguing for a, a tactically more aggressive position. Uh, in the non-US space, um, you know, largely because of what I described earlier on. You know, if you believe that we're in about to enter a phase of synchronized global growth, recovery, accelerating economies around the world, um, that's usually a pretty good environment for uh, non-US equity returns. It's normally a more adverse environment for the US dollar. So it's typically a, a period where you want to be uh, pushing up your, your non-US equity allocation. In terms of where clients are invested uh, today, obviously it varies um, depending on, on the individual client, but we have a pretty good perspective on on the aggregate because we work you know, very closely with uh, a broad sweep of clients in terms of looking at, uh, at their allocations and trying to help them think about um, the optimal uh, allocations within that. And what typically... Uh, we're seeing clients within their equity exposure uh, down around the sort of 20-25% uh, level in terms of, of the uh, percentage of their equities that they're allocating outside the US. So they're, they're typically below uh, what our multi-asset solutions group would be saying is the, uh, the right uh, place to be uh, at the moment. Um, but look, wh- whatever your starting point, I think... Um, you know, per the earlier comments, if 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 you're of the view as I am that um, you know the outlook for global economic growth is looking more and more positive, uh, and we're likely to see you know a more synchronized um, recovery and acceleration, uh, not just in the U.S. but more broadly, then that argues, I think, for for taking up the allocation to to non-U.S. stocks. Thank you for joining us, Shane, and thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode, where I'll be joined by Hamilton Reiner, head of U.S. equity derivatives here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.